0: Welcome to The Uncomfortable Truth. This is the third of three episodes of the Emmy-winning film about racism in America. In the previous episode, we explored how the institution of slavery evolved into Jim Crow and segregation. This final episode takes us through the Civil Rights Movement and into the era we now call the colorblind Society. And now, it is time to get uncomfortable. Segregation stretched into every corner of American society. This was true of the military as well. In 1939, of the roughly 190,000 soldiers serving in the army, only 3,600 were black. In the entire armed forces, roughly 335,000 troops, there were only five black officers. Three were chaplains. And Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, admitted that the military was requiring rigid literacy standards to keep down the number of colored troops. One of the funny things was is that what they realized was that they quickly realized was that the southern white males couldn't read either, and that as a matter of fact, northern blacks had finished more schooling than southern whites. so uh, what the Selective service did was just you know just do away with all this you know literacy nonsense and just uh, use the racial guidelines like those used by Nazi Germany. My mom learned that the war was over. Um, and they were in Washington state still uh, and she was in Nordstrom's eating mac and cheese, right? And, and here she is getting ready for this uh, parade taking place, and it's the soldiers marching down the, the streets, and, and it was a happy time. So as the war is coming to a close, what the uh, the government's just figuring out is they need to help all these soldiers who are returning you know, to find, you know, white soldiers, uh, to... to finish their education, get good jobs and, uh, you know, start a family, buy a home and stuff. So they create what's called the GI Bill. And really it was because they they feared the social calamity that was going to follow with millions of people coming home without jobs, but now trained in the art of of killing each other.
1: The GI Bill, they made sure that this was going to work for the benefit of white people. Because as soon as they said it will be administered by the states, Anybody and their mother knew what was going to happen—that they were going to go to the favored people and you build the houses here, and they were allowed, even in New York, to build housing that Black people could, did not have access to, and that was okay because that's that's what the state wanted to do with the money. So you know the big boys could say, "Well, we did what we had to do," uh, and you know anybody that was a soldier benefits. Now the education part. A lot of black people benefited from that, but then where are they gonna go? That was a dead-end thing that they did because they didn't do anything about housing discrimination.
0: In Mississippi, only two loans guaranteed by the GI Bill for homes, businesses, or farms went to blacks in 1947. The other 3,227, or 99.99938%, went to whites. In the suburbs of New York and New Jersey, of the 67,000 mortgages insured by the GI Bill, 100 went to non-whites, a little more than one-tenth of 1%. And while this all happened 70 years ago, if you move forward to 1984, when many of the mortgages were maturing, the median net worth of white households was $100,000. For black households, it was $12,000. In 2013, things are not much different. The net worth of whites is 13 times greater than blacks, or To put it another way, for every dollar a white person has in wealth, a black person has eight to 10 cents. And this is not about whites being smarter or blacks being lazier or whatever sort of, you know, off base racial assumption one wants to make. It's about a foundation of racism to maintain the status quo. It's about a a starting line set so far back by the policies of white supremacy that you can't even see it. And even if the economic discrimination faced by African-Americans ended today, and if they ended right now, it would still take several hundred years for blacks to catch up to whites. Now, when I first heard that, I was like, that doesn't make sense. But, but just think about it. Look at the GI Bill. It's one policy. And look at its impact after 70 years. Now multiply that by hundreds of policies over hundreds of years. It starts to
2: add up.
1: I think people don't understand when you say uh, for instance, that you benefited from this being a racist society. I had a conversation with my wife. My father worked for what he had, and I worked for what I got, and I said, that's true. I said, but you had an opportunity to work for what you got and to work for what you have. And you had a lot of black people who were working their asses off and couldn't get a house, or couldn't get this, or couldn't get that. And they couldn't get it because they were black. Well, how did that benefit me? Because you by denying them, you never had to compete with a whole bunch of people. Never had to compete. They weren't being educated. And I said, if you look at what black people have accomplished in this country with all the stuff that has happened to us, that's frightening. That's frightening. An
0: Ordinary Hero was my first award-winning documentary. It's about the life of my mother, Joan Trumpower Mulholland, and her participation in the civil rights movement. For most of us, our mothers are heroes because they're mothers, and mom is just mom. But when your mother's a civil rights icon, and yet you never really knew it, things change. Go check out An Ordinary Hero and find out how choosing to do what was right instead of what was easy helped change the world. You can find it on Amazon Prime, or visit loki.malholland.com to purchase a copy for your collection. I... Never really thought about how my grandparents benefited from uh, the GI Bill until I started thinking about my grandmother. Here was this lady who was, I mean, you really think about it, she was born a sharecropper, cotton fields of Georgia, um, you know, dirt floor in a home, and yet would go on to become a millionaire in real estate. Not because she was the right gender, you know, at that time she wasn't, but she was definitely the right color. So when I was working on this film, we were gonna go back to Georgia, and I asked my mom if she wanted to come along, because I knew for the past couple of years that she had been wanting to see some of the old family sites one last time, type of thing. And, you know, she's 75 now. And, and uh, one of the places she wanted to get back to was uh, a little logging town, a former logging town called Oconee, Georgia. And uh, it's still as small as it was then, I'm sure. and. This is the place where my mom would go and visit her grandmother Addie Chandler when she was a little girl. Um, they had just gotten indoor plumbing at that time. Now indoor plumbing then meant that you know it was just a pipe back to some well or something like that. And you didn't drink the water because there would still be aquatic life that would come through when you turned on the tap. And this is you know how they lived. Uh, but my mom. Uh, it's very significant in our in our lives because it's this turning point in the family's history. So, um, on a dare, my my mom heads down this road with her friend and into the black quarters of Oconee, and, and my mom sees the realities of segregation and separate but equal, and she says, "You know, this is wrong, and I'm going to do something about it."
1: It fascinated me that someone who seemingly had this life—it was made, you know—you. You know, you're the Southern belle, and, and uh, you know, you always think of them, well, they just kind of got it made. They kind of vap it, and they don't really know a whole hell of a lot, but, but you know, they got it made, and they're going to get the husband and do the whole thing. And here's a woman that said, you know what, uh, I don't need all that. What I need to do is go fix something that I see is wrong, um, and I am willing to risk um, whatever losses I take to do that and stand by that. And I think because of that attitude, by the way, I think that's why Jones was so embraced. There was nothing phony about it. It was like, you know, there was this stubborn, quiet person that said, this needs to change.
0: My mother and thousands like her believed in the Constitution and the Declaration that all men and women are created equal. They exercised their rights to create change so that everyone could live in a true democracy and not one that was governed by one class one group of people. But as the last vestiges of Jim Crow were being dismantled, a new structure was being built on the foundation of racism, the colorblind society. Racism without racism. So basically what happens is the system just constantly resets itself it finds a a new way to do the same old thing. This is what leads to the colorblind society, when Wallace in 1958 loses to John Patterson for the governorship. Um, Wallace, uh, surprisingly, actually runs as a racial moderate. And John Patterson just plays up to everyone's racial fears. And so Wallace knew that if he was ever actually going to get elected, he was going to have to change his tune. And so he says, um, he says, I'll never be out niggered again. And he was right. He actually uh, won four more terms. I think served until like 1980. He also ran for president. And in 68, he loses to Richard Nixon, but Nixon actually learned something from Wallace and implements what's called the Southern Strategy. And uh, Bush and Reagan would go on to, to, to use the same strategy, which is basically um, manipulate people's racial and, and economic fears and and uh, bring them over into your party. And this was taking place um, as after Johnson gave African-Americans the right to vote in 65. And so all these Southern Democrats, you know, were getting swooped up by the Republican Party. I mean, there was no, it was no, there was no mere coincidence that, that uh, Reagan kicked off his general election campaign in Neshoba County, the very place where the three civil rights workers were killed 16 years earlier in 64, you know? Now, Reagan said he believed in state rights. When people called him on, he said, well, that's not racist, but everyone knew what the hell he was talking about. Lee Atwater, who was the former chairman of the Republican National Committee and who served on Reagan's staff, confirmed this Southern strategy in 1981. And he said, and I quote, you can't run around saying nigger, nigger, nigger anymore, right? You have to say things like state rights and cut taxes, which meant your tax dollars won't be wasted on minorities, right? Now, Bush... Bush won, exemplified this strategy with his famous Willie Horton ad, which basically implied that if Dukakis won, that he would allow the, he would, he would release black prisoners and they would go on and rape your white women. Now, Bush was down 17 points before that ad was released. He won by eight. My work has taken me to a lot of places and I've been fortunate to meet some incredible people. But when I came to Selma and met Joanne Blackman Bland, I knew I was in the presence of greatness. Joanne was 11 years old when she was attacked on the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Bloody Sunday in 1965. She wasn't old enough to vote, but understood its importance enough to be there. After Selma is an in-depth look at how our right to vote has eroded since the signing of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. The fight for the right to vote continues. Get informed. You can find After Selma on Amazon Prime or visit Lokimalholland.com to purchase a copy for your collection.
1: And nothing essentially has changed in that system, just hasn't. And we can applaud that a black person got elected, but we need to look at that. A lot of folks think that was a big mistake, not because he was a liberal, but because he was black. Uh, and But if you look at our educational system and all that stuff, nobody's going to go anywhere. And to declare that it's that way because uh, that's just how things are means you're not going to face the issue of, well, why is it people of color that are there? Why is that? Why is that? Now, I will tell you that one of the things that ought to happen in this country is that poor white people and black people ought to get together. But they've constructed over the years ways to keep that from happening. And the way to keep that from happening is to say, whoops, they're taking your White House, they're taking your jobs, they're doing this. So you're constantly fighting the person who's your natural ally. Because, believe me, they're clear on who their allies are. They go to the same colleges, go to the same clubs, and then they kind of split up later on. I'm going to go south and you go to north. But the one thing we'll agree on is that they cannot take power in this country. So how do we do that? We keep them from voting, we don't educate them, they can't get the jobs. All of that still happens. And that's gonna to continue to happen until either there's actually a revolution in this country, or there's something in people who claim to be people of good conscience actually get pissed off.
0: So the political legacy of all this is actually very striking. You know, you have Wallace and in 68 stretching all the way out to basically what Trump was doing in in 2016, right? Um, You see someone like Strom Thurmond, who uh, was one of the signers of the Southern Manifesto in 56, and who ran for president in 1948 on a segregationist platform. Uh, Then in 2001, I think it was, when Trent Lott, the incoming Senate Majority Leader from Mississippi, says that the country would have been better served if Thurman won. Now, of course, you know, when everyone called him on it, he backpedaled and said he just regretted that the way his words were interpreted. So this is why you have something like Georgia's two strikes, you're out rule. Michelle Alexander explained it best when she said that it was only invoked against 1% of white defendants facing a second drug conviction, but against 16% of African-American defendants And so what ends up happening is is that uh, those serving a life sentence under this provision, 98.4% are African American. 98.4%. Now, if all you knew was the 98.4% and didn't know the why, what else could you possibly assume? I mean, understand, we've been conditioned to see things a certain way, to think a certain way. And that's why when we hear something that contradicts what we think we know, we put up these walls to protect ourselves so that we can live in the myth. Because we like the myth.
1: Right?
0: We're safe in the myth. We're comfortable in the myth.
1: There's no, you'd almost think there is no white crime. Yet there's more white people in jail than there are black people. But you would think, you don't, they don't talk about it. And then they'll say stupid stuff when they do talk about black. Well, you know, most of the black crime is against black people. Well, most of the white crime is against white people. Why don't we have that discussion? Well, because what they're really saying is we're afraid that the black people are going to do something to white people. So they don't even understand that in the same breath they're contradicting themselves if it's against black people. See, when they say it's against black people, they're justifying police behavior in the black community. That's the only reason they ever make that statement. It's not that they're saying we're concerned about that. They're saying that's why the police do what they do. We don't understand why black people complain about the police because most crime on black people is against black people. So we need to be there and they should appreciate that no matter what we do. There's no reason to talk about white crime on white people because that's not what they're afraid of. They're afraid of the black people doing something to white people. So it's like there's no conversation going on. It's just a bunch of statements that make no sense. And yes, black people steal, black people kill, black people do drugs, but so do white people. And you try to have a conversation about white crime, I've tried. As soon as they make that statement about black crime and black people, I said, well, I'd rather talk about white crime or white people. Because I don't trust any of you people because you steal my money. Wall Street was about white people, not black people. Yet you trust them, you keep giving them your money. I said, so if you get mugged by a black guy, how come all black people got to pay for that? You suffer a lot more when they take your savings and you don't have any money to feed your children than you do if you get hit on the head and your watch gets stolen.
0: Want a great way to help a worthy organization and educate children about the civil rights movement? Visit our foundation, the Joan Trump Trumpower Mulholland Foundation, at the jtmfoundation.org. That's the JTM Foundation.org. T H E Foundation.org. We are a 501c3 established to help end racism through education. A $5 monthly recurring donation will provide curriculum for 30 students. As my mother used to say, I can't do everything, but I can do something, because doing nothing is not an option. If you have wanted to help in this cause, but didn't know how, now you can. The Joan Trump Power Mulholland Foundation. At the JTMFoundation.org. And yet, while whites and blacks commit crimes at roughly the same rate, their arrest rates are very different. If you look at a population of 100,000 white males in America, 478 are in state or federal prison. For black males, that number jumps to 3,023. Today, we have more African-Americans under the criminal justice system than were slaves in 1850. And that's
1: the real crime. You know, it was unfortunate that when that was first introduced, there really was an issue with crack. <laughs> you know, and, and at the same time, by the way, that they went after crack, there's always a racist element to what goes on. They didn't go after the cocaine people. Now, on Wall Street, Wall Street, famous Wall Street, people used to deliver cocaine in briefcases. They would dress like the businessmen and they would go, now if I know that, don't you think every cop knew that? I mean that's what they'd go to the office and they'd have their briefcase and they'd deliver drugs.
0: So when Nixon declares the war on drugs there's not even a drug problem in the country. In fact incarceration rates are in decline. Uh, It was even admitted recently that uh, the whole thing was all about going after the hippies and the civil rights movement people. Um, And and, in 1998, I think it was, uh, the CIA even admits that uh, they were allowing drugs to be sold in certain inner city neighborhoods to, uh, to help fund a covert operation taking place in Nicaragua. And so while Nancy was saying, say no to drugs, Ronnie was selling it on the street corner.
1: When they started, now, this was a federal program, right? War on was a federal program. And in order to do it, they had to enlist the aid of the local police departments. Same thing they're trying to do with the, the immigrants. So to do that, they said, you know, here's, here's some money. We'll give you money. And the more people you arrest, we'll give you more money. And to make it really nice for you, we're going to give you some real cool weapons. Right? So now you have local police departments walking around with Uzis and all kinds of whatever they carry submachine guns and stuff, ready to kill people. That's the presence they are presenting to the community. And they start to make arrests. Well, arrests is the way you get promoted. Arrests gets more money into the department from the federal government. The boys upstairs like that, remember it's always tone at the top. Boys upstairs like that, you have this impressive police department. They're making these drug arrests. Now, nobody happens to notice that there's a lot of kids dying from drugs still. The drugs are still moving through the country. Nothing has changed, and, but we now have the war on drugs. And no president has wanted to say, you know, this is stupid. So every one of them keeps signing it. And more arms keeps flowing into local communities. So you, you, you watch, and not just the Ferguson, but you, you see it on TV with Ferguson. And you watch the police show up. And what used to be like a vest and some white gear, now they're coming up with camouflage. In the middle of a street, you got camouflage gear on? And you got guns hanging off, and you got anti-personnel things, and you've got turrets in the ceiling. What the hell is that?
0: So, what you end up seeing in this war on drugs is this explosion in um, in arrests of African Americans and Hispanics and such. And that, uh, despite the fact that that whites and blacks use drugs at roughly the same rate, seventy-five um, percent of all those who are imprisoned for drug offenses are either black or Hispanic. So the question is, why? It's because you'll never see a SWAT team raid a university, but you'll always find them in the hood. And you see this sort of of thing across the board, Um, not just with drugs. Um, It's just the same thing over and over and over again. It's why the unemployment rate for African-Americans is twice as high than that of whites. And Reagan's welfare queen makes us forget who the king is. Whites make up 42% of the poor but take in 69% of the benefits, while blacks make up only 22% of the poor and take in 14% of the benefits.
1: Everything is kind of rigged against uh, doing what I talk about doing, having dialogues and and admitting that things need to be changed and admitting that there's racism and admitting that there's class struggle in this country. Nobody wants to talk about that, but it's it's a fact. You know, and the wealthy continue to try to put themselves behind gates. Well, you're going to run out of gates. You know, me, I'd like to go have conversations with a lot of poor white people. That they don't, they ain't ready for that, but I'd like to do that. To tell them, look, folks, uh, I'm not your enemy. Now, as soon as I do that, we have a history that says, if I were allowed to do that, I would be shot. Because every leader in this country who's ever done that, with any degree of success, has been shot whether it's Malcolm X or Martin Luther King or... Doesn't matter. You can chat. Why? Because somebody has an interest in making sure that you don't stir people up. They don't learn that.
0: In my other life, I'm a filmmaker, and one of my more fascinating films I created is the award-winning film titled Black, White, and Us. It's about viewing racism through the lens of transracial adoptions in Utah. Utah? Yeah, Utah. It just so happens to be the transracial adoption capital of the world. So, what happens when white families who didn't believe racism existed anymore adopt a black child? Find it on Amazon Prime or visit LokiMalHolland.com to purchase a copy for your collection. So, to borrow a little bit from Iris Marion Young's birdcage analogy, that if you only saw one wire of the cage, you would wonder why the, the bird just didn't fly away. But the further you step back, the more you see and the more you realize that the bird can't fly away. It's trapped and needs someone to set it free. And the truth sets you free. Uh, In 1963, this photo was taken. This is the Jackson-Wall we're sitting. It was taken by a guy named Fred Blackwell. it was John Salter, my mother, and Anna Moody. And when Fred walked into the Woolworths that day, he walked in as a segregationist. He was uh, you know, friends with many of the people in the crowd. he um, you know, grew up with them. Right? I think he dated one of the sisters, even. But uh, when he saw the ugly realities of segregation and Jim Crow, exactly on these peaceful demonstrators, he said he could no longer be a segregationist, and he walked out that day believing in integration.
1: For me, I can speak to it all mattering for me because I believe, I hope, I don't know that I believe. I'd like to create a better world. I'd like to create, uh, I've always worked to create an environment for my own child that is one where she can express herself in a positive way in whatever way she chooses. And I would like not to have her race get in the way. Uh, I'd like to see that happen for all kids, white and black. Because what people miss is that a white child in this day and age who grows up in an all-white environment and only knows how to relate to other white people is screwed. Because the world doesn't look that way anymore.
0: Dr. King once spoke of a dream where freedom would ring even from Stone Mountain and that the sons of slaves and the sons of slave owners would be able to sit down at the table of Brotherhood. Sometimes, you know, it's painful, but it's what's needed. In 1991, my, my great-aunt Icy passed away, followed by my grandfather in 96, Norman in 98, Uncle Oki and Ann Reba in, in 99. With that, my, my grandmother was all alone. Was the, the last of her generation. She was uh, being held over at a hospital after some heart tests and was gonna be released the next, the next day to a, to a care center. And uh, my mother had called her to uh, let her know about the arrangements, that a family friend was going to pick her up, and my mom would see her uh, that evening. My, my grandmother just was incensed. It was, it was not, not proper. She raised her voice and said, Joni, I'm getting out of here. They've got me in a colored room. My mom said she was going to ask her, what color was the room? Was it, was it blue or pink, purple? But instead, she just she bit her tongue and said, you know, Mother, people don't think that way anymore. I'll see you tomorrow. With that, my grandmother passed away. She was a, she was a wonderful grandmother. I mean, she was this you know, Georgia sharecropper who owned two houses on the beach. One in the mountains and her home on the lake, and uh, you know she bought homes for her poor relatives and and uh, drove a Cadillac. Right? It was uh, and then when we turned ten years old, she would took us anywhere we wanted to go in the world. Wednesday night, every Wednesday night, we'd go to McDonald's. That's back when it meant something, of course. And when it was time for all seven of our grandchildren to to go to college, she paid for all of it. But she never told me who Aunt Mary was. Who was this, who was this one that stayed when everyone left? What was her, what was her hopes, what was her dreams? Here's her name. This lady who's apparently such an important part of the family, and, and yet no one could tell me anything about her. Digging up in your family history, it's uh, you know, you, 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 don't, you don't get a pick and choose. Your family history is not a buffet, right? You don't get to leave the lima beans and take the barbecue. It doesn't work that way. You, uh, you have to take it all, and it all, your family history sums up who you are, but doesn't necessarily define who you are. You, you get to choose that. My mother chose that uh, in 51, and I continue to try to choose that today. We, we never found Aunt Mary the uh, the grave sites we went to you know i you would think that because she was considered family that we would but she was never there she would never have been buried with with our family but the the myth you know, continued even to the grave Now, I'd seen this 1880 census before, over the years. I've seen it multiple times, but only for the the first time recently. Because there beneath the names of my great, great, great grandparents, Walton and Clarissa Harris, is Mary. Her last name is listed as Harris. She was 69 years old, which means she was probably born in 1811. She's a servant single, no children, couldn't read or write. She was born in the very place that I was born, in Virginia, which is where her parents were born as well, and where my family had helped create that foundation of racism. And as quickly as I could Gather this information together, she was gone. I've never found, I've never found another mention of Mary Harris ever again.
3: A trumpet sounds within my soul, I ain't got long to stay here.
2: trumpet sounds within my soul I ain't got long to stay here steal away steal away steal away steal away, steal away to Jesus steal
0: Thank you for listening to episode three of the film, The Uncomfortable Truth. There are more episodes to dive into with additional conversations on race and racism in America. Make sure you head to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Loki Mulholland. Show a little love if you can and get access to even more content. Until next time, don't be afraid to get uncomfortable.